1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on
0: Agriculture. Thank you for joining us and letting us be part of your day. We always appreciate it. Big day, of course. It's Inauguration Day. We'll be talking about that and other big things in the news, including more RFS waivers were indeed granted and by the outgoing Trump administration. Not as many as possible. There were several uh, up for uh, possible granting, but uh, they only approved three but still that's three more than the biofuels industry wanted to see that's for sure we'll have much more reaction to that a little bit later on in today's program and more on tomorrow's program as well the biodiesel industry's virtual annual conference continues today and we will hear from a couple of folks with the biodiesel industry a little bit later on in today's program and we're going to look at developing weather patterns here we are past mid-January now and thinking more and more about spring planting time. We'll look at some of those developing patterns here in the US and what's happening in South America as well. We'll be talking with the director of the US DA Midwest Climate Hub a little bit later on. But on this inauguration day, let's head to our nation's capital. Jerry Hagstrom with the Hagstrom Report joins us. Jerry, thank you for being with us quite a day.
2: It sure is quite a day. I'm sitting in my living room in Northwest Washington watching the events. Of course, if it were any other time, I would probably try to be at the Capitol. In fact, move heaven and earth to get a press pass to be there, but, uh, but not this year. Uh, it's, it's going to be a really big day, not just because of the presidential inauguration, but also because this afternoon the uh, senators from Georgia will be sworn in, and uh, the, Demo- the control of the Senate will shift to the Democrats, and we'll have a new Senate Agriculture Committee chairman, Debbie Stabenow, from Michigan.
0: Yeah, the change is underway and also the confirmation process getting underway.
2: Yes. Now, we haven't had a, a confirmation uh, uh, hearing date announced for uh, Tom Vilsack. I think that's because the, the Senate Ag Committee has essentially been without a chairman uh you know pat roberts retired and the republicans have still been in charge and so nothing's been announced but now after Stabenow takes over i assume that the hearing will be announced uh quite soon uh one thing i learned today is that uh uh secretary vilsack former secretary vilsack uh is remaining in iowa until that hearing that was he told that to the storm lake times uh one of the uh small newspapers in iowa but one that is uh very well regarded
0: yeah and it's expected that his confirmation uh hearing will go pretty smoothly and quickly i would think uh, folks very familiar with him and uh, he has a lot of uh you know good contacts there and uh, good reputation with a lot of those and there'll be questions of course but of all those that have, uh, that will be going through the process. His would seem to be one of the smoothest.
2: Yes, I expect it to be. Now, in in uh, recent weeks, uh, his nomination has been criticized by black farm leaders and the NAACP, but I would point out that even though he's gotten a lot of bad press out of this, um, the conventional farm groups have praised the nomination, and I think equally important... Um, on a uh, an anti-hunger rally this week, there were there were uh, nutrition and and uh, anti-hunger advocates who praised uh, who praised his nomination. So I think overwhelmingly he he is supported, but there will be questions about how he will ha- uh, handle the issues that Black farmers are so concerned about.
0: Of course, a lot of focus will be on uh, what actions are taken by incoming president biden immediately the things that he has said he will do and then we'll start watching to see the policy directions of this administration and this congress
2: uh yes Uh, i noticed today in the list of uh actions that he's going to take uh, the only one at usda so far is to reverse this rule on whether you can build roads in the in the uh uh, forest in Alaska. Uh, that had been banned for many, many years, and, uh, and uh, President Trump, uh, issue, or the Agriculture Department, issued a rule that you could build the roads, and so they're, they're going to do that. But I would expect there will also be some reversals on the Trump administration's attempts to reduce uh, access to the uh, food stamp program. Uh, in terms of actual agriculture policies, uh, I'm not sure. Uh, but certainly this uh, statement uh, yesterday, this, this uh, memorandum on genetically altered uh, or engineered uh, animals uh, shifting power from the FDA to the USDA, that is very controversial. I'm not sure how they're going to handle it, but it will there, something will be
0: done. Yeah, a lot of things to watch here. Now, in the meantime, in this period of transition, uh, who actually runs USDA until Secretary Vilsack is confirmed?
2: Well, it will be some, it, uh, formally, it will be some very high ranking uh, civil servants um, th- uh, who normally take power, uh, but the Biden team has is already putting in place uh the chief of staff for Biden a woman named Katherine Ferguson who worked in the Obama administration uh she worked on rural development uh and then she worked in the white house uh and they put in a couple of other people in the secretary's office uh and i'm sure they will uh kind of keep the trains uh running uh while uh while we wait for the confirmation we've heard nothing oh and and of course the deputy secretary has been uh, named uh, Jewel Brown from uh, Virginia where she's the Ag Commissioner, but she also has to be confirmed. So neither she nor Vilsack can, can work at the Agriculture Department until that confirmation. So uh, that's how, about how the system works.
0: Yep, interesting time. It'll be also be interesting, one of the more controversial moves uh, in the last four years at USDA was moving of uh, ag research people from Washington, D.C. to Kansas City. Has there been any talk about reversing that at all? Well,
2: there is talking talk about reversing it. Uh, one of the problems that they face, of course, is that they have hired some people to take the positions in Kansas City and if you were to to tell all those people well you've got to move to Washington now there would be reaction against that partly because the cost of housing is so much higher in Washington but at the same time those agencies still have a lot of unfilled positions so that if they wanted to uh shift the the uh agencies back to Washington uh, they could hire people for those positions and have them be Washington-based. Uh, Washington the senior leadership of both the Economic Research Service and the National Institute for Food and Agriculture remained in Washington. Uh, it was a very strange uh, uh, decision viewed by many people as punitive for, because those agencies had take act, taken action that the Trump administration didn't like. So we'll have to. We'll just have to wait and see how they handle that. Yeah,
0: so much going on, so many moving parts. So uh, we'll be uh, calling on you to help us keep track of all of it, Jerry. Thanks a lot.
2: Okay, I look forward to talking to people. I'm going to be trying to find out what happens as soon as I can.
0: Very good, Jerry Hagstrom with the Hagstrom Report here on AOA.
3: What kitchen gadget is so essential to food safety that no home should be without it? I'm registered dietitian nutritionist Toby Smithson. A food thermometer isn't just for meat and poultry. It will help you avoid food poisoning from egg dishes, casseroles, and leftovers by ensuring they're fully cooked by reaching a safe minimum internal temperature. Heat leftovers and casseroles to at least 165 degrees and egg dishes to at least 160 degrees. You'll find more food safety tips at homefoodsafety.org.
0: Recently on Atoms on Agriculture, we're talking with Jeff Cooper, President and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. I think back, Jeff, Mm -hmm. a year ago, we were so excited with that Tenth Circuit Court ruling. A year later, we're still waiting for a resolution on that, and we've seen what's happened uh, in the year past. So, I mean... There's so much at stake yeah. here moving forward.
4: Oh, well, there is. And, and, you know, again, I think this all goes to show that the outgoing administrator, Andrew Wheeler, is just a, a complete hypocrite. Because for the last year, he's been telling us, can't uh, adopt the 10th Circuit court case. I can't implement this until the appeals process fully plays out. Well, it hasn't played out. And, and now we have the case going to the Supreme Court. They're going to review the 10th the Circuit case. Won't play out until July or August. But now Wheeler's in a rush to get these things granted. It's just another bald-faced life. From, uh, from this administration on the RFS. And I, for one, will be happy to see uh, Andrew Wheeler
0: leaving the building next week. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture.
5: As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. The good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration.
0: You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news
1: from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on agriculture now back to Mike Adams.
0: Well, as we already moved to the latter part of January, we're starting to think more and more about spring planting time and wondering about weather patterns developing here, as well as what's going on in South America here to kind of give us an overview is Dennis Toddy, director of the USDA Midwest climate hub. Dennis, always good to talk with you. Thank you for being with us. Uh, the big concern here in the U S of course, uh, Dryness uh, in some key areas, and if it's going to stay dry as we head into planting time, what do you see developing?
6: Well, you, you are you are very dead on with this. Uh, you know we know about the serious conditions in the southwest throughout much of the plains, we have some pretty serious problems. And then there's a little sliver of drought uh, across central Illinois into northern Indiana that. It's kind of been stubborn. We kept thinking we'd get rid of that one somewhere along the way here. It does look like the you know the storm pattern is going to get a bit more active, and that should help work on that area in the Illinois, Indiana area. We've had a few storms through there, but they keep missing that little sliver of, of, of D1, uh, the U.S. drought monitor. Um, we have some bigger concerns out in the, the plains into Iowa, a little part of Minnesota, where, you know, we have conditions as bad as, as D3 uh, extreme drought on the U.S. drought monitor. Uh, you know, what, what's going to happen is that we're getting to, you know, towards the latter part of winter, into latter January, this is a time when climatologically we start getting more precipitation anyway, um, you know, they, you think of midwinter as the bad time for storms. Actually, our, our biggest storms are, are are the latter part of winter, so we're going to start seeing some of that anyway, which will give us some more moisture, which is is a good thing. Not as good for livestock, depending on how bad the storm system is. Um, and the the effects of La Nina, I uh, was on a call this week, and the expectation is the effects of La Nina should start kicking in a bit more in the latter part of winter, which means the pattern should be more active especially in that you know, eastern Corn Belt area and maybe some of the northern plains. So we will start getting some moisture. Unfortunately, uh, lots of snow is not going to do a ton for us in the way of getting moisture back in the soils. It will help a little bit. So we need to be looking ahead to what happens in the spring after soils thaw. And we will expect to get some help at that point. We're just not sure how, if it will be enough or how much there will be at that point.
0: So it sounds like after what's for the most part been a relatively mild winter so far for much of the country, uh should we be kind of bracing for winter storms in February then?
6: I you know, I think there is a better chance of that, especially more of the eastern part of the corn belt and maybe some further north. Uh we'll see the new outlooks when they come out tomorrow. Um that we we have some better chance for for some winter storms, uh which we is part of the course. But you mentioned the warmth, and, and, and you know, that is the other side of the people. I've heard some people talk about, oh, we're waiting for the other side of this. It's been so warm. It's been so nice. Just looking at some numbers over the, the last couple of days here, and then, you know, parts of the Dakotas and northern Minnesota, for the, northern Minnesota over the last 30 days were 10 to 12 degrees above average. For a 30-day period, we're 10 to 12 degrees above average. Grand Forks has been below zero this year. You know, Grand Forks is is not Miami. Um, it's they've been below zero like five or six times this year so it's astounding how warm we've been up in that area and people think okay we've got cold coming cold's gonna be coming and i keep looking and there is some cold coming but it's not astounding cold and it doesn't look like it's going to be long-lived so um, there will be you know some periods of cold but it doesn't look like it's going to hit us that hard and climatologically we start picking up at this point the average temperatures start increasing from this time uh, on into the growing season so um yes but we'll keep an eye on storms but you know we're, we're we're working our way days are getting longer and average temperatures will start increasing
0: talking with dennis toddy director of the usda midwest climate hub we're also keeping a close watch of course on the weather in south america uh, checking on their crop conditions what can you tell us there
6: uh our, our situation you know we've that's helped run some of the crop prices as we've had some widespread dryness issues uh there has been some recovery in a few areas or uh, from additional precipitation in a few areas that there was a bit late for some of the crop uh unfortunately well unfortunately for them maybe maybe fortunately for some people are able to take advantage of the crop prices too late to be able to help out some of those issues down there so um you know we're probably getting to a point near the end down there that we're going to have to start looking back at what's happening up here as we look ahead to the growing season and what's going to be happening with the fields in our area
0: yeah seems like brazil's been in a little better shape weather-wise than argentina has been correct yep
6: yep that has that has been the, the situation here on that one
0: yeah so we continue to watch that so as we look here it's the U.S. weather, and you described the pattern uh, where we're at now and what we may see here at the latter parts of this winter. Does this Is this similar to any years past as far as uh, kind of a, a forecast for what we might see this spring and into the summer?
6: You know, it's, it, it, it is. The one I'm kind of looking at right now a little bit is uh, maybe that, 99-2000 uh, period. And, and the reason why is because I uh, mentioned uh, we're in a La Nina and that La Nina, you know, still running uh, moderately strong. So, so that's hanging on and continuing to influence us, though not looking completely like a La Nina. Um, the, the current outlook is that the La Nina will weaken uh, in spring and that it is supposed to go to neutral conditions this summer so that the La Nina is not influencing us in the summertime. But then there on the other on the there's a you know, La Nina could come back, there's a chance that it come back next uh winter. Not as strong, but it comes back again. So uh this is not an uncommon thing. Um so I, I'm kinda wondering you know, looking at the ninety nine two thousand uh time frame where we had something look like this where we had a moderately strong anemia and then kind of it kind of hung on and came back the next year. So I have some level of concern about us going on into the summer. Not that I'm calling for major drought issues. We, we don't know enough at this point to be able to say that's, that's a problem, but my, 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 my inclination looking at this is that there's a, a heightened level of risk. Uh, particularly because we have dry soils starting the year and then some slightly increased level of dryness going into the summer at this point. So, um, you know, we, we tend to have drought somewhere in the Corn Belt every summer, somewhere in the Corn Belt and Plains. It's just a matter of how, how much there is and how strong it is is, is part of the issue. Um, so, uh, and, but the places we're most concerned about right now are, are the Plains and into Iowa, uh, where uh, the very dry soils they've not had much recovery going in into that leave them very susceptible as we go into the growing season.
0: And certainly different for a lot of areas where we we were concerned about high water levels, river levels, and wondering how would they handle you know uh, spring thaws and spring rains. Uh, now we're looking at uh, low water levels on a lot of our rivers, and, and the concern has been about those uh, levels being so low and causing some issues. So it's a lot different than it has been in recent, recent years.
6: It, it really is. It, it's a hugely different situation. And if our soil moisture situation was better, um, I would not be as concerned going in as we are right now. Uh, but that, that's part of the levels. we're starting off with it being dry, uh, starting off. So, uh, and, you know, that's one thing that we can take advantage of in this situation that people have a, an opportunity to, um, you know, maybe get a little bit of earlier field work done with these dry soils to take advantage of that. That's working in their favor, but, uh, you know, that, that is a real problem. And, and the surface water situation that you bring up is another one, too, that we have some streams and some ponds and that, that are lower than they have been some other years that can be a problem going on we had an issue even in parts of iowa and some of the drought areas where people are having to haul water for livestock and where they usually don't have to do that so that may be something we have to watch as we go on into the
0: issues with the dryness issues yep each year brings its own set of challenges that's for sure dennis always appreciate your perspective and and overview of the situation thank you much
6: happy to do it you guys have a great week
0: All right, take care. Dennis Toddy, director of the USDA Midwest Climate Hub. Well, up next, uh, again, we continue to cover the biodiesel industry. Their national virtual conference is going on uh, this week. We're going to talk about some more biodiesel issues coming up. Of course, uh, the news uh, concerning renewable fuels happening just uh, late yesterday. The outgoing Trump administration, their EPA, granting three more small refinery waivers. That issue continues. We'll be getting much more reaction to that uh, tomorrow, but we'll be talking about that as well on today's program as we uh, look ahead to the biofuels industry and in particular the biodiesel industry. That's up next. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture. Coming right up.
6: Adams on Agriculture. on Agriculture. Conversations with policymakers,
5: the movers and shakers in the ag industry. The pros and cons of issues
0: important to you, cutting through the spin to get to the heart of the topic and giving you the information you need to know. Every weekday, Mike Adams brings you a guest important to the ag industry. It's quite simply information farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture.
7: Adams
1: on Agriculture
0: join us every tuesday for around the table brought to you by chs as we examine how the modern cooperative system solves today's biggest challenges we'll be talking to chs experts and farmers and ranchers just like you and we'll learn how cooperatives apply innovation and technology to help co-op owners get more value every day so join us for around the table every tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more
1: You're listening to Adams on Agriculture for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen with this market update. Well, as we take a look at our grain trade, it's been a rough start to our Wednesday. We started a technical correction yesterday, and we've continued that into our Wednesday trade. And it's been a fairly large technical correction, although we are starting to see this market start to get back some of what it lost in our overnight trade. As we saw that overnight trade, grain and soybean markets plunged with overseas values. We saw a lot of uh, a lot of correction with a lot of profit taking out there. Funds who are record long in corn, uh, that's been weighing on our values here as we've worked through our trading session. Also, on uh, the last couple of days, weather in South America has improved with even Argentine rain in the past two weeks at or above normal. And that has been weighing on this market as well. Now, other than a January index of U.S. homebuilder activity at 9 a.m., there's no official reports scheduled for today, uh, the day of inauguration for President Joe Biden. Traders will continue to watch the latest forecasts and any export news that surfaces. Wednesday's usual energy inventory reports, those are due out on Friday. Current numbers right now, Chicago Border Trade, March corn, eight and a quarter lower, five seventeen to three quarters. March soybeans, sixteen to three quarters cents lower, thirteen sixty-nine. Bean meal for March down eight ten a ton at four forty-two forty. March bean oil up sixty-two points at forty-two thirty-two. March Chicago wheat, three and a half lower, six sixty-eight and three-quarters. March Kansas City winter wheat down three and a quarter at 640 and three quarters. March Minneapolis spring wheat four and three quarters lower, 638 and three quarters. Mixed to higher action in livestock, February live cattle up 72 at 114.05. January feeder cattle 105 higher at 135.45. And February lean hogs up 50 right now at 66.97. The Dow Jones up 182, S&P futures up 37, and the NASDAQ 214 higher. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen.
8: What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death.
0: the National BioDiesel Virtual Conference continues today, and we continue our focus on the biodiesel industry. Joining us now is Floyd Vergara. He is Director of State Governmental Affairs for the National BioDiesel Board. Floyd, thanks for joining us. Uh, we've had a lot of uh, discussion this week about uh, where biodiesel fits into the uh, push for, you know, climate. Uh, policy and the changes that may be taking place with the new administration and the new Congress uh, going in that uh, direction. Carbon reduction is certainly uh, a, a big uh, area of emphasis. Uh, the biodiesel industry, as we have been saying, is certainly very uniquely positioned to be a part of this uh, policy moving forward. In fact, it already is a very important part in, in carbon reduction efforts, isn't it?
7: Yeah, and I think that's absolutely right. Uh, but before we go there, I just wanted to thank you for having me on your program. Um, just for your listeners, uh, for their benefit, uh, a little bit of background on me. Um, before I joined uh, uh, NBB last year, or sorry, in uh, 2019, uh, I was uh, with the California Air Resources Board for over thir- uh, three decades. So, Um, developing programs like the low-carbon fuel standard and other climate and air quality programs. So uh, I am uh, putting that sort of, you know, former regulator uh, perspective into my comments. Um, But going back to your comment, yeah, you know, the states are driving uh, a lot of the activities with regard to biodiesel and renewable diesel. Um, As Donnell Rehagen, our CEO, has uh, said, and I have said uh, often, the state uh, carbon uh, reduction policies are, are just growing uh, by leaps and bounds. Um, you know, starting in 2009, you had a basically one state with a comprehensive economy-wide uh, carbon reduction target, and that was California. Uh, five years from there, you know, afterwards you had uh, the Northeast, and then, you know, now you have uh, about half, you have half basically of the country uh, in terms of the states uh, with comprehensive economy-wide carbon reduction goals, those goals tend to be, um, you know, along the lines of uh, 40% reduction by 2030 and 80% reduction by 2050. Uh, those states represent over half of the U.S. population, uh, uh, more than 40% of the on-road uh, fuel used, and over 90% of the heating oil that's used. So. A uh, very large portion of the the country that's um, being reflected in those carbon reduction goals.
0: And tell us, uh, give us some examples, if you could, uh, how biodiesel is a, a part of those plans.
7: Yeah, so let me let me uh, you know go back to California again because uh, a lot of the states do follow California's um, um, uh, example. So uh, in California, there. You know we we established the uh, low carbon fuel standard back in uh, two thousand and ten. And basically that requires uh, fuel suppliers that sell fuel in California to um, reduce the carbon intensity score of the the transportation fuels that are used in California. and it, it applies to virtually all transportation fuels. Um, the expectation at the time was that uh, cellulosic ethanol was going to grow tremendously and provide the lion's share of those carbon reductions. But of course, that did not happen. And it turns out uh, biodiesel uh, and then in later years, uh, renewable diesel along with biodiesel actually stepped up and uh, filled in that role and provided um, a, a large portion of the, um, the carbon reductions under that program. Just to give you an example, uh, in 2011, when the standards kicked in, um, there were, I mean, it's a veritable drop in the bucket. 14 million gallons of biodiesel sold in California uh, in 2019, the last full uh, reporting year. That grew to 830 million gallons, and we believe we're on track to uh, meet or exceed 1 billion gallons uh, in the next reporting year. So uh, that's a you know close to 6,000 percent growth rate. Um, it's grown to the the point where renewable diesel and biodiesel basically comprise almost a quarter of each gallon of diesel fuel that's um, consumed in the state. So um, you're seeing similar, uh, if lower scale, uh, sort of growth uh, in Oregon, and we're hoping to replicate that sort of success in the other states that are are looking to follow suit. Um, Washington Washington State is uh, close to Uh, completing a uh, legislation that would establish a low carbon fuel standard program in that state and then uh, in conjunction with British Columbia you basically have the first um, coastal uh, you know uh, region with a comprehensive uh, fuel clean fuels program and that's a lot of volume uh, you know that that would help drive um, biodiesel renewable diesel volumes And you're seeing other states, uh, you know, uh, exploring these sort of concepts. Colorado uh, uh, is looking at it in their um, draft roadmap for GHG reductions. Nevada has um, uh, uh, mentioned it in uh, their uh, recent uh, releases. Uh, And then in the Northeast, there's uh, discussions uh, of uh, low carbon fuel standard in New York. And then um, there's also a lot of effort to replace the um, heating oil that's used in space heating applications with biodiesel and biodiesel blends. So definitely a lot of uh, drivers out there at the state level, and, you know, we're, we're really pushing to, to get uh, these fields out there because they, are, they check off a lot of boxes. They have an enormous number of uh, environmental and public health benefits. Um, they reduce greenhouse gas emissions by, you know, up to 80%. Um, uh, uh, particulate matter, which is uh, very important in terms of public health benefits, particularly for vulnerable populations that live in and around, uh, not in, but around um, uh, heavy diesel use uh, facilities like ports and rail yards. Um, PM reduction could be up to uh, 50%. Uh, You have over 40% reduction in carbon monoxide and, you know, significant uh, reductions in those sort of pollutants that are really harming people. So um, these uh, sustainable drop-in diesel replacements are are really uh, providing that immediate benefit Uh, as drop-in fuels. They don't require, you know, uh, whole new infrastructures, uh, engine modifications. In fact, fleets that are interested in improving their uh, sustainability um, score or their sustainability uh, and carbon footprint, they could go to uh, 100% sustainable fuel by using uh, a renewable diesel-biodiesel blend and completely displace uh, their entire diesel, uh,
0: fossil diesel consumption. So
7: that, that's just an example. Those are examples of how biodiesel has been playing an important role. Yeah, a
0: lot of progress. It's amazing the growth we've seen in this area. And I know part of the work of the National Biodiesel Board, the biodiesel industry, will be to talk with uh, – the uh, People in Congress and people in the new administration, as they're setting these policies moving forward, to to show them what the biodiesel industry is already doing and how it plays such a big part in these goals of uh, of cleaner air.
7: Yeah, definitely. And and you know, we would of course be part of that uh, conversation. I believe you've already spoken to our director of uh, uh, federal affairs, um, uh, Kurt mm-hmm. uh, Kubart. Um, but, yeah, it's, it, you know, we, uh, we would be happy to participate and provide the, the state experience, particularly uh, the experience that we've had in California and the successes and lessons learned and how those could apply uh, at a national level if the new administration wants to go in that direction.
0: And finally, when you, when you use the term biodiesel and renewable biodiesel, what's the difference between those two?
7: Yeah, I'm glad you asked. I mean, they are um, two diesel uh, replacement fuels. Uh, they're sustainable, domestically produced drop-in replacements for fossil diesel, and they're they're both available at commercial scale. Um, they're chemically different. They go through different, different uh, chemical processes. Uh, biodiesel goes through what's called a transesterification uh, process, whereas renewable diesel goes through... Um, basically the same sort of process that conventional fossil diesel goes through except it's made from um, a renewable feedstock like and they're both made from the same renewable feedstock um, waste oils like uh, used cooking oil um, uh, rendered tallow from the meat processing industry and then crop derived uh, co-products like soybean oil and canola oil
0: So it's been amazing to see the the progress and the evolution of this industry since it first started and the the tremendous progress that has been made. And really, as we move forward in these new policies, a new era of of climate uh, policies, uh, it'll be... um, Very interesting to see how, where the biofuels industry, the part it will play, and it's certainly making its case to play a major part in that moving forward. Floyd, good to talk with you. Thanks for the overview and the update on what's being done in different parts of the country. So much has been done in this area. Thank you so much.
7: Yeah, thank you for having me. Have a good day.
0: Take care. All right, Floyd Vergara, Director of State Governmental Affairs for the National Biodiesel Board. So indeed, the, the biodiesel industry has grown so much, uh, despite some headwinds over the years, has really grown and developed and in a good position to move forward now uh, as we look ahead to uh, the change in Washington, D.C. and the obviously the emphasis is going to be on these policy these climate policy issues coming up next we're going to talk with the nebraska farmer greg anderson he's been involved with this biodiesel industry really since its outset and uh, has uh, been very involved in working not only as a um, a soybean grower but also as someone who's been uh, very involved in shaping the policy and the direction of the industry over the years we'll get his perspective on how this all got started, where it's at now, and where he hopes it will be going in the future. That's coming up next. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up.
9: You may not realize how important three letters can be. For a patient who needs type A, B, or O blood, these letters can mean life but there simply aren't enough people giving blood. Every two seconds, someone in the U.S. needs it, but only about 3% of the population donates. Without more donors, hospitals may not have the blood needed to save lives. That's why the American Red Cross needs people to help restore the A's, B's, and O's that are depleting each day. When you make your appointment to donate blood at redcrossblood.org forward slash missing types, you can help give strength to kids parents and grandparents who face life and death challenges. From cancer patients to accident survivors waiting for critical surgeries, your generosity can give someone more life. Don't wait until the letters A, B, and O are missing from hospital shelves. You are the missing type patients need. Visit redcrossblood.org forward slash missing types or call 1-800-RED-CROSS to make your donation appointment today. Do you know how to keep food safe at home? Clean,
8: separate, cook, and chill.
3: The easy lessons of clean, separate, cook, and chill will help you protect your family and be food safe. Let's talk about how to separate. First, use different cutting boards for meat, poultry, seafood, and veggies. Raw meat should never touch food that won't be cooked. Then, always keep raw meat, poultry, seafood and their juices away from other foods in the shopping cart. And store raw meat, poultry and seafood in a container or on a plate in the fridge so juices won't drip on other foods. Food safety risks at home are more common than most people think. The USDA is your partner in being food safe. For more information, visit BeFoodSafe.gov or call 1-888-MP-Hotline.
9: Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block.
0: Recently on Adams on Agriculture, Michael Formica joins us, Assistant Vice President, Domestic Affairs for the National Pork Producers Council. Michael, thanks for joining us. Tell us about this new campaign.
6: So we launched a new campaign yesterday called Farming Today for Tomorrow, and the goal and the purpose is pork producers for 50 years or more have really been incredibly progressive and leading the way in improvements not only to the industry and how we're Raising the animals, but there are benefits from all of those improvements. With the direct focus on the environment and environmental improvement, we've got much reduced uh, water quality issues. We've got complete control of our manure. We we keep adopting and developing new conservation methods, for soil conservation purposes. We are constantly reducing our air emission profile. And then through all of this, there's a you know there's a real co-benefit on the on the climate.
0: Side. For the information important to rural America, join us on Atoms on Agriculture. Carbon monoxide is a colorless, odorless gas that can be fatal.
6: Don't use anything indoors that burns fuel, such as gasoline-powered generators, camp stoves and lanterns, or charcoal grills. Opening doors and windows or using fans isn't enough. Have your vents and chimneys checked to make sure water heater and gas furnace exhausts aren't blocked. If you feel sick Dizzy or weak while using a
0: generator, get to fresh air right away. From the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around
1: the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams.
0: Over the years, I have uh, covered the creation and uh, development of the biofuels industry, both ethanol and biodiesel, and it has been um, amazing to watch them both as they've been formed and and grown and evolved over the years and it's quite a story really quite a a success story and i think back to in both cases ethanol and biodiesel um how they got started, the grassroots level, and the farmer involvement in them, and the push to get them done. I think, especially now on biodiesel, that we're talking about this week during their virtual annual conference, um, there was a glut of soybean oil uh, on the market, depressing prices, and farmers were looking for a way to uh, to to alleviate that situation and, and move the product, and and. Basically, soy biodiesel uh, was created, and look where it's uh, grown to. And one of those farmers who's been very involved in this uh, from the beginning is Greg Anderson, soybean farmer from Nebraska, who joins us now. And Greg, it's been quite a ride, a lot of ups and downs, but uh, really a a lot of success, too.
4: Absolutely, Mike. I remember those early days, along with you, as you covered those stories as the biodiesel Uh, really movement was beginning and I remember those days of uh, using biodiesel on my farm and and adding uh, two and a half gallon jugs to my uh, equipment to uh, blend in it to get a two percent blend level and look at where we're at now and look at where we'll be just in a few years with uh, our goal of, of 6 billion gallons usage by the year 2030 on on-road, off-road, air transportation, electricity generation, and home heating applications. Just phenomenal story and uh, one that's very timely now as we're uh, in the middle of our conference.
0: Well, I've always believed very strongly in the, the biofuels uh, movement and Uh, To me, it's always been a a no-brainer. I mean, it just made sense, a a renewable source of energy, and uh, so many benefits, the environmental benefits, the uh, lessening of uh, dependence on other countries for our our energy, to have a domestic industry like this, we're providing jobs, and there's just, to me, so many benefits. But yet, it has been a struggle to get here. I mean, there have been a lot of challenges, and continues to be.
4: the challenges it seems like uh, every year we'll, we're facing something and yet uh, the integrity of the fuel the popularity of the fuel and the performance of the fuel continue to override those challenges and exceed our expectations even i i think as a farmer just seeing the the demand for soybean oil for instance uh, over the last ten years increasing some three hundred percent due to biodiesel it's just incredible uh, now that we're using over eight billion pounds of soybean oil which as you stated earlier uh, was, was a glut on the market, a drag on the market, uh, and now it's a key component of, of our uh, price of our soybeans. And so it's an incredible story to continue to, that d- develops and continues to grow. Um, it, it does it better, though. Biodiesel is better for our equipment, better for the ag industry and, and for the environment, which I think will continue to play a, a major part in these next few years, especially the env- environmental aspect.
0: And the technology that's that's come into the industry, it's come so far. I mean, the early days, uh, you know, concerns about cold weather performance, gelling things like that. We've come so far. I mean, the product has evolved and made such great strides.
4: It's it's better and better. Um, the illustrations that we're using now, as I, thought, I heard just yesterday, you know, it's like. When our cell phones first were uh, coming out and and being used, we had the old bag phone that we carried around in our pickup trucks, and it was looking for reception. It's hard to to uh, to get going. And now we're using uh, smartphones, iPhones that uh, just have the computer capacity that would just blow our minds. That's kind of how biodiesel has uh, transitioned. It's it's the best it's ever been right now, and it's the most tested uh, quality fuel fuel out there. It continues to exceed the uh, standards that have been set and so as diesel engines continue to change and they are uh, so does biodiesel along with it and and we just see biodiesel being a seamless transition a drop-in fuel that can be used uh, that's just uh, widely accepted by all the original equipment manufacturers
0: as we see this push now uh, on climate policy and issues it makes me think the the fuel biodiesel was almost a product A little ahead of its time i mean it seems like and it's a good thing that it's here and established and ready to go because now the opportunities seem perhaps greater than ever
4: oh absolutely the 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 new era for low carbon fuels is just tailor-made for biodiesel we're right here right now able to meet that need as we see the energy transition uh, go to clean energy and with the ultimate goal of driving down greenhouse gas emissions, uh, biodiesel is a uh, the answer to that. Uh, we can use that in our transportation industry, which is the biggest uh, concern on uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And here we can uh, really solve that problem. We're going to uh, have a goal of net zero, uh, you know, carbon uh, emissions, and uh, we we see the continued reductions, especially. Uh, on the East Coast with, uh, with the bioheat movement. We see it on the, in the California with their high standards and their uh, desire to get to net zero as soon as possible. And, and biodiesel, renewable diesel absolutely fits that bill.
0: Come a long way since those days of trying to get uh, folks to give it a try, even had to convince some farmers to give it a try. I mean, there was a lot of skepticism early on, but, uh, and there's still challenges ahead, obviously, but uh, again, a lot of progress.
4: A lot of progress, Mike, and especially you know, with the availability that was really a concern earlier where uh, you know we'd like to use it, we just can't get it. Uh, those problems are being solved just every day, and, and we've seen more and more suppliers and, and their retail outlets uh, carry it, as well as terminals where people can come and, and you know the jobbers can come and, and fill their trucks with any type of blend level they want to serve the customer's need. That is a tremendous success story, one that I've seen here even in Nebraska where I live.
0: Excited to see what the future holds for the biodiesel industry. Greg, you've been such a big part of its past, present, and I know you will be in the future. Thank you very much for being with us.
4: Thanks, Mike. Great to be with you.
0: Nebraska soybean farmer, real leader in the biodiesel industry, Greg Anderson. Well, that wraps it up for today. Much more coming up tomorrow, including a look at the markets. Uh, Where are we? Is the rally over? Pausing? Where are we at? More on that and also reaction to the granting of more, three more uh, small refinery exemptions to the RFS. We'll talk about that and more tomorrow here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.